Hey, Enneagram friends. I'm Abby, an IA-accredited Enneagram teacher and certified somatic practitioner. We've had a bit of a break from the podcast as I've been with my kiddos this summer and busy teaching corporate workshops around the Enneagram this fall, but I'm so glad to be back in the podcast space and for my first guest to be Sarah Jane Case from Enneagram and Coffee here with us today to share more about her experience and her personal growth within that type seven structure. Before I invite her onto the podcast, let me share with you just a little bit about Sarah Jane Case's work in the Enneagram world. So Sarah Jane is a trained Enneagram teacher and author of the popular self-help book, The Honest Enneagram, and she's also the host of Enneagram and Coffee, the podcast. She helps people to find their perfect balance between self-care and growth so that they can release shame on their path to doing less harm. Her new book, The Enneagram Letters, a poetic exploration of who you thought you had to be, releases on October 18th, and it's available for pre-order now, and we'll put all the links to that in the show notes. So friends, I am so excited to share with you and to offer this interview with Sarah Jane. She offers tremendous insight around personal growth and that type seven structure with specific practices around the things that has helped her most, the areas that she's grown in and and what that evolution and, and that journey looked like for her. Um, I hope that you will listen in with curiosity and listen in with compassion for the sevens that you hold dearly in your life. Well, thank you so much for being here, for sharing a space together. Um, I know that we, we got to chat on your podcast last fall, and so I'm really excited to get to be in a shared Enneagram conversation with you. So thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, this season of the podcast, um, I'm really excited to uh, offer listeners not just uh, conversations and coaching, but really a, a deep dive into your Enneagram type. So obviously, as an Enneagram teacher, you could talk about all the nine types with us. Um, but coming from the narrative tradition, which I know you're familiar with, but that's where we first met, um, there's really something special getting to hear someone talk about their type, but especially someone that has um, more of a sophistication around it and more of an expertise um, because you're a teacher and an author and, and really can delve into that. And so um, that's kind of where we're heading. Before we get there, though, I'd love to know, um, you know, what was your process of figuring out your Enneagram type? Did it, did it hit you right away or was there some discernment as you were kind of, you know, back in the old days when you were first figuring it out? It was an absolute journey for me. It was long and thorough. Uh, I typed, I took the, a quiz online and I typed as a type two and I loved that. I was like, I'm so helpful. I'm so self-sacrificing. <laughs> um, but honestly, the same day, my husband typed as a seven. He's a four. And I read the seven description and I thought, someone's written my journal. Like someone has followed me around and wrote down my innermost thoughts. Yeah. But I, when I read that, I honestly thought seven, that that meant sevens were just happy all the time, that like they literally didn't feel sadness. And so I thought, well, I feel sadness, so that can't be me. And mm -hmm. so two years later, I went through a whole journey. I loved the thought of being a nine for a while. I, um, there were just like so many types that I really tried on and played with. And it really came down to seven and nine. And now that I know the Enneagram better, nine is an absolute absurdity for me. Like just with my personality, it like makes no sense. But at the time I thought, I'm a peacemaker. Like I like to make people comfortable, you know? And so all of that to say, I finally hired a coach. 
talked um, Le- Leslie Hirschberger and talked with her and she helped me. She was just like asked me questions, you know, and eventually was like, you're a seven. And, and I really felt grateful for that because I, I related so much to seven that it was like permission to really just yeah. like go home. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it makes sense even too in retrospect because, I mean, you're landing on all the positive outlook numbers, right? Like the two, <laughs> nine, right? So it's like, yeah, I just, this, this orientation and um, I was doing a typing interview with someone that was the same and it was like, so you're really good at avoiding things, but there's a lot of good like silver lining to this too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so even in, I always think it's interesting when you look back on the points along the journey to realize like, oh, it all made sense. Like I wasn't wandering around. I was just making pit stops along the diagram before I got to seven. So yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. So then thinking about your work, how did your, your work as an Enneagram teacher, practitioner, how did this find you? Well, you know, it started because as I was trying to find my type, I went into like a deep research rabbit hole, tried on, I really tried on almost every number for a season other than type six. I always knew six wasn't me. So I tried on every number. um, And so through that, I researched and researched and researched it, trying to understand, listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, read almost every book I could find. And then I, at the time I was a coach, I was helping people recover from burnout burnout or prevent burnout. And I started to hear things. Like I was like starting to hear patterns and it helped me so much in my work with burnout to ask people, like, let's figure out your Enneagram type because then we can understand what's motivating these behaviors, like why you are continuously overworking and undercharging. And so yeah, through that process, I was like, I should get certified. And I also had a friend at the time say, can you find an outlet because this is all you talk about now? <laughs> and like, I love, <laughs> but what like, a nice way <laughs> to do that. <laughs> and he's a three. So it was very much like a, I see there's an interest here. Let me guide you. Um, so I created Enneagram and Coffee around the same time I got certified and um, it blew up really quickly. I thought maybe my mom and my friends would follow it and it went from zero to a hundred thousand in three days. And oh I just, it kind of happened. And for a while I was in denial that this was going to be my career. I thought like, oh, this is like a hobby. And then eventually I just embraced this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, when you think about um, like that uh, very quick growth and, and some of those things, it almost was like your, uh, the results that you were getting were, were almost inviting you to take the next step. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I just wonder, even thinking back on those early days, um, like what that process was like coming into being a coach and, you know, you were already in the coaching realm, right? With burnout and things like that. Um, but I imagine that created a lot of pressure for you, right? That now there's like this quick spotlight that's getting brighter and brighter. And like, you're still really new into this world, even though you've been in the coaching world for a while. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Um, terrifying. I literally <laughs> fell on the floor crying. Like I, oh, um, I was so just like, I don't know. I'm not ready for this. And I just signed up for every training I could. <laughs> like I yeah. just kept taking workshops and t- kept training. And um, 
at the time I was working so much with one-on-one with people that I was able to kind of bring the Enneagram into it. The certification that I did originally was Integrative 9 and they offer – like in order to get certified, you have to do these like one-on-one intensives. So that helped a lot. But yeah, I definitely had like major imposter syndrome at first and it took me – I mean, I would say a year and a half of training and going to workshops and really investing in education to feel yeah. confident um, because – yeah. And then that's when I was able to start changing my content a little bit to be more educational, more compassionate, because it started out just kind of silly and fun yeah. because that's, that's what, what I thought it, Yeah, that's what I thought it was going to be. And then, yeah, once I learned more, the more I wanted to share. So, Yeah. No, I love you in the evolution, even just like the evolution of you as a, a teacher and um, and the like content both specifically in the individual space, but then also, you know, Instagram is an evolution to it. Right. Um, and so I love hearing that. So I'd love to hear a little bit of your evolution of you personally and your seven structure. You know, I think sometimes, um, at least for me, when I first learned about the Enneagram, um, I always would jokingly say these moments, like where I got Enneagrammed, like I got punked by the Enneagram, um, where I'll read something or a teacher will say something. And there's that like embarrassing moment of she's talking about me and I'm about to have to share and respond. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you think back to when you first learned about the Enneagram, not recently, but when you first learned, if there were some of those moments that you'd be willing to share of like this language specifically, or this growth edge or this blind spot that felt like, um, like, okay, here's the piece I need to start being mindful of or balancing out things that came up for you. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that I tend to approach growth like this really intense pendulum where it's like, okay, I'm here. This is what I'm doing. And then I find out like, oh, that's not always working for me. So then I go, okay, I'm going to go all the way into restriction, which <laughs> I am a social seven. So we love to restrict ourselves. It's like a fun game. Um, so <laughs> I like go all the way over into restriction. So I found out, oh, sevens quick things really early. Um, Sevens tend to, you know, bounce from thing to thing. We are, you know, we don't like to feel our emotions. We, you know, lean on our charm. So I literally tried to not do any of that for a solid year and a half, I would say. Like just, I'm not going to quit anything. I'm not going to, I'm just, I just kind of fully rejected that part of myself. Um, Now that I've been at this a little bit longer, I can honor the strengths, you know, that come from that, the positive thinking, the ability to move on. And when something's not working, um, the self-trust that that requires, I can really honor and respect that. And at the same time, try to temper it. (laughs) So I think the best example is quitting things too soon. I think for a long time, I would start things really fast and then not, I would, I had one point had 10 different income streams, but no marketing plan to get those sold. And so in that process of kind of recognizing that I was like, I need to simplify, but at the same time, um, in order to commit to these things, I need to have like a plan. I need a commitment deadline. So now I say, okay, I'm going to commit to this thing for the next 12 months. And then I'll check in at those 12 months and decide again, if we're going to do this for longer, because a lot of times when I was quitting, I was just quitting to get out of the feeling that I was having in that moment. And so I would say, this doesn't feel good. I need to move on. I need to do something else. And feelings turns out are temporary. They come and they go. And the more that I allow them to flow naturally, the easier it is for me to 
sit with things for a little bit longer. And so that that timeline and that commitment deadline allows me to just stay through the the difficult feelings and make the decision from a place of like non-emotionality. Yeah, for sure. When I love even just hearing the evolution of that, um, you know, the, the first experience that you shared, I think happens to all of us. Like, uh, and even I feel like I see it so much in the workshops that I teach where it's like, okay, well, how do I like scrub off my type then? Like, okay, you're telling me it's bad. And I'm like, I'm not telling you it's bad. I'm trying to increase your awareness. Right. But it's the yeah. sense of like, well, how do I get rid of it then? Um, and, and, you know, I heard someone say once, like in those moments, you are using your personality to fix your personality and it's never going to work. Right. Because you're just using your Enneagram structure to fix your structure. And it's not, doesn't work that way, right? You're just putting on more and more layers of your personality. Um, and I hear even as you talk through that, that that invitation of just accepting, right? Mm-hmm. And just having a more compassionate lens towards like, and this is just true. So how do I put some, you know, how do I put some um, things in place like deadlines and checkpoints um, to make sure it's not, you know, going off the rails and it's not an autopilot. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. It's like not on autopilot, like letting it, ha- like noticing it, paying attention to it, but not letting it drive the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think even the, um, you know, thinking specifically about the social piece of that, because I think social sevens in general, um, you know, there are, once you learn your type, there are a lot of parts that's like, okay, I'm a seven, right? This I am, and this resonates, but there are some tricky pieces, especially with what you named of the, um, like being more reserved or even like um, constrained about things. And it's kind of like this, that martyrdom that you show up in the type two structure, but it can come into that social seven. Um, and it's tricky because it feels like, not self-referencing, like there's, there's a sense of, of outside and people and others and connecting. Um, and so even that piece, I love that you named that because it's a nuance for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering as you, um, kind of moved outside of that first wave of, okay, here's my type, here's the pieces. Um, I think oftentimes, you know, I've experienced this, but I, especially for people that I work with over years, sometimes there's like this second wave of something that comes that feels like very tricky and it's very nuanced and it's not something you learn in the one-on-one of Enneagram. It's more of like, oh, I, I've sat with myself for a while now and, and I've tried on some things and um, I have some more self-awareness, but it becomes this nuanced piece of this growing edge in your type um, that whether it shows up in relationships or in your work, um, and some people will say it's something that feels like it snuck up on them. Sometimes it's something that, um, people just didn't even really resonate with as much when they first learned about it. And then the more they sat in their number, they realized, oh man, I totally do that too. And like here it's showing up now that I'm a parent or now that this new thing happened. So I'm curious if there's any kind of like a second wave of something that was more nuanced you noticed and, and it was kind of a growing edge for you. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's so much that I'm like, oh, I could go. I've just, there's so much complexity and so much that I've like can hit by wave after wave after wave. Um, the one that's like up for me the most in this moment is my desire for other people to be okay. Um, that first I started focusing on my desire to be okay, my desire to be happy. And then I started realizing, you know, through parenting and through marriage that I also want everyone else to be happy because if they're not, then like that bums me out. Mm -hmm. So I had to work really hard on, I heard it in parenting really obviously. I like one night my kid was crying and I was like, like, you have so much to be grateful for. Like, look, you have a roof over your head. You have, you know, and I was just naming things. 
And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it to him. Like the thing I do to myself, this like um, invalidation, honestly, of my own emotions, because I have so much to be grateful for. There's so much good in the world, no matter where I've been. I'm doing it to him now. You know, like what I do to myself, I will do to others. So um, I had to like pause and go, tell me about your feelings. What does it feel like? Because until I was comfortable being in my body with the feelings that I was having, then the also like that empathetic side of me feeling other people's feelings felt like feeling my own feelings, right? So learning how to set up energetic boundaries so that other people can feel mm-hmm. <laughs> and just saying like, you're allowed to have your feelings. That doesn't have to be something that I hold. And at the same time, I don't have to, because of that, I don't have to fix it. I can just let it be what it is. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I love that you named until I could feel comfortable with it in my experience, like those emotions in my experience. Um, then it's like, how, how could you feel comfortable with someone else's, right? It feels doubly Mm -hmm. awful because you actually have no control and not that you really have control of your emotions either. Right. Sometimes it's, it's just the allowing it to be and to go. Um, you know, and I think especially with parenting and I don't think this is just a seven Mm -hmm. thing, but there's just this innate sense of, of like, wanting to help by get rid of, you know, wanting to help by getting rid of things. Um, and, and so much of it is, you know, teaching our kiddos how to be with their emotions rather than, you know, these negative coping mechanisms that we pick up when, as time goes on um, so that they can, they can process them and, and name what's going on and ask for help more specifically if they know what's going on. Um, and so I love that even thinking about your, your experience as a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder as you um, think about, you know, this, this element of um, parenting, I think there's, there's always this sense of, of realizing the things that um, you needed, you know, sometimes people say this is like inner child work or they, there's lots of different names for it, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's things that you started to notice as you're parenting a little human and a little being, um, even if, you know, their personality are different, which I guess I'm not sure if you have one or, or multiple kiddos, but, um, but, but what's the, are there things that feel like they come up that reflect back on you as the sense of, um, like, oh man, and I needed that, or I'm doing the things that felt constricting to me growing up or, or any of those pieces as you you name that I think the the most obvious thing for me in terms of doing it giving him what I wish I had is typically like experiences and fun and and presence mm-hmm. um what I wish I'd had and so almost like an overcorrection for like how my parents parented me. So the seven element of my parenting is very much like a direct response to what I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, I also tend to parent a lot like a one or a three um, with that like doing mentality of like, okay, I'll make sure that all of your homework is done. I'll make sure that you have clothes laid out for you the night before. Like, And I had to pause and recognize that a lot of that energy – isn't being received as love, even though that's what I'm trying to give. I have to actually be present with them and like sit with him and listen. And that's what's going to make him feel the most loved. And and I think that's maybe specifically with our kiddo who I think is like more time oriented. Mm -hmm. But um, so I think that's where like I've done it wrong is maybe not the right word, but you know, that's where I've done it kind of on autopilot. And then intentionally (laughs) I'm learning to allow him to have, you know, again, allowing him to have feelings. He said recently, like, I just, I have anger issues. 
And having the conversation of, do you have anger issues or do you have anger? Yeah. Because anger, we all have anger um, and we get to choose how we express that anger, which you've ne- like, I'm talking to him, like you've never done hurtfully. You've always just kind of breathed through. And I was like, and actually from knowing you, like, I think you tend to not ask for what you need, not express yourself. And so maybe the anger is coming from like a natural response to not taking care of yourself, not asking for what you need. Um, So anyway, all of those conversations are things I couldn't have done before the Enneagram, right? Because I had to learn how it's okay for me to have anger. Because I think before the seven structure very much like prioritizes positive emotions, positive outlooks, you know, gratitude, you know, thinking with rose, you know, looking through the world through rose colored glasses. And so I would have but it kind of oppressively put that onto him if I wasn't careful. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think even, you know, when you name it, like all those pieces, those, those can be assets, right? And, you know, and I think even mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm interacting with sevens, when they're coming into the Enneagram world um, and it feels like I love everything about my type. Like I don't understand how uh-huh. people are so bummed out, right? Or, or any of these pieces. And then even trying to talk mm-hmm. through and give like the shadow that comes with the rosy colored glasses. Sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. Cause it, it, Mm -hmm. it's this full weight of, um, I don't want the glasses to get shattered because that's going to hurt if I can see the rest of it. But then there also becomes this element of like, I've made a lot of things, like I've made it through a lot of things because of my silver lining, because life was hard or this season was bad, or I was dealt a crappy set of like a hand of cards and, and I needed my rosy colored glasses. And the thing is like, that is also true too, right? There's a level of resilience that comes, um, and being able to not just like wallow in, this is horrible. And that like despair, um, However, there has to be some spaces and safe spaces where you can take off the rosy colored glasses and know that you're going to be okay and and you can survive the emotion that comes when those glasses are off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the message we receive when we're kids, right, is that we can only rely on ourselves, that we are we have to get our needs met by taking care of ourselves. And so when I got older, you know, that rose colored glasses thing, that thinking positively, that making the best of any situation, like you said, like that helped me to survive, but it also made me my best friend, right? Like it helped me to like myself and to love myself and to know that I've got my own back. And the vulnerability that comes with acknowledging that like I may not have it all figured out and that like maybe these methods aren't always serving me is so terrifying because what I know is that I'm okay, that I can take care of myself and that I can trust myself. And if that gets taken away, well, then that's kind of like the foundation starts to kind of crumble. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's incredibly vulnerable. To yeah, it. for sure. Yeah. When I think even the language you're using, you know, we talk about um, with type seven rationali- rationalization being that defense mechanism. And it's really trying to hold in place the sense of like, and I'm okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And whether that is <clears throat> because I've always know how to put my, like pull myself up by my bootstraps, or I've always found people to be connected to or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but it's the sense of like, that is holding together this, this deep ideal of like, and I'm okay. And so when that gets mm-hmm. taken away or it feels like this person or this conversation or this moment or this invitation is trying to take it away. Um, your type structure didn't like it. And it just, it becomes really nerve wracking and rocky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the past, you know, when that would be taken, when that would 
surprise me, you know, in a relationship. If someone had like criticism for me or feedback for me, that could end the relationship. That could um, create like a, a snip back, you know, and, and yeah. sevens can say hurtful things, you know, like can be really blunt um, or cold because we're, we're not relational as, as friendly and as like warm as we are, um, we're head types. We're not relational types. We have no connection to our heart center. And so not saying that that's not learnable, but we can be very much like, well, that's just how it is. Like that's logical. And that's, this is what I see and can kind of, I have in the past, like been very quick to cut people off or quick to, um, have a retort, right. Because they made me feel unsafe or uncomfortable or vulnerable or, um, sad. Yeah, for sure. When I think even um, in addition to that head type, you know, I, I just am convinced that sevens think faster than any other types. Like, you know, it's just that, that, and it shows up in, in some of the like incredible like brainstorming and here's what could be and here's on to the next thing. Um, and so I think sometimes that too, it's like people at a disadvantage if you're going to argue because you can think so much quicker. And so of course you came up with something that was clever and witty and maybe even charming, even though it wasn't charming. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that, that positive outlook harmonic group, right. It's the, like, everything's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Until it's not. And then it's like mm-hmm. escape hatch. Like I, I gotta be out of here. And then this is going, mm-hmm. going well and, and I can't do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're talking about with your kiddo, you mentioned um, this kind of language of energetic boundaries. I'm curious if you would share more about that and even just the kind of the um, process that you took in, in naming that and what that looks like for you, if you were going to offer that um, specifically like from a practitioner lens um, to, you know, another seven that's listening. Mm-hmm. I will say. I'm still very much in practice of this, but um, it's really identifying. And the sentence I say to myself all the time is, where do I end and they begin? And like recognizing the separation between the two of our beings. Um, This is particularly important. I really feel like I catch negative emotions or I'm afraid of catching negative emotions from anyone, but it's particularly important when there's no escape, you know, if you live with the people and you're in close quarters. So um, for me, it's really about like noticing my body, recognizing what does it feel like to be in my body? Um, Are these my emotions? And where do they end and where do I begin? And taking a deep breath. The other thing for me I had to learn is that it feels cold, kind of. Like I'm, by separating myself from them, am I abandoning them? Am I like, you know, not being there for them, not fixing their emotions is really what I am feeling. That's the fear that I'm having is that they won't feel better if this happens, that they'll feel worse. But in reality, right, when I create that separation, I'm more compassionate. I'm much more patient. I'm able to um, take care of myself in the ways that I need to. They're able to feel their feelings however they need to feel them without me kind of poking and prodding in there. And then I can offer them much more – just so much more patience because I'm not so scared of getting trapped in their emotions myself. Yeah, for sure. When it sounds like even just that – um, like that healthy integration of five of like, it's the non-attachment, not like detachment. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a part of this, but it's like, mm-hmm. I'm present and I'm observing. So it's not my mm-hmm. stuff. I know where you start and I begin. Um, but there's, there's an ability for me to be present because it's not all my mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I'm with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that. 
Um, you mentioned kind of this, this sense of what it feels like in your body. Um, and for me, you know, I, I integrate somatic um, work into my practice. And oftentimes for sevens, it, it takes some time to feel to like physically feel their body the the senses when things are coming up for them um we do a lot of work with body scans and practices to um help them as they're they're tuning into that but in real time um it can be really hard outside of the like set aside exclusive space where we're very slowly easing into it for them to feel it because i'm just curious as a sudden what your experience was like having some awareness of your felt sense and and what was going on yeah i would say I had maybe an easier time once I found the Enneagram to do this because I'd been practicing yoga for years before I found the Enneagram. And I think yoga is probably the number one thing that has helped me to understand my limitations, to respect my body, to listen to my body, um, and to respect my body's limitations, you know, and the sensations in my body. So that and meditation, I think, are the two things that have helped me with that the most. And I had implemented those prior to knowing the Enneagram. But I will say attaching those to my emotions came through the lens of the Enneagram and my work with that because I I could sense my body, but I wasn't really paying attention to my emotions ever. Um, like my head, I got. My body, I, I eventually got. Um, and then my emotions, I still am trying to understand. There are days where my husband will look at me and he'll go, what's wrong? And I'll be like, nothing. And then a few <laughs> minutes later, I'm crying. And I'm like, oh, something was here. I just didn't know, you know? Yeah. So um, I will say like one of the pivotal moments for me in connecting those two is actually my husband, um, who's a four. He and I were walking to lunch one day and I was irritable and I was just feeling really grumpy. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just feeling, ugh, I'm just feeling off. And he was like, well, where do you feel that in your body? And I was like, oh, I feel it. It's like in my chest. And then immediately it was like I knew what was going on in my heart. Like I knew what I was feeling because I just paid attention to my body for like 0.5 seconds. Yeah. And um, and in that I realized like I was kind of feeling jealous of him because he just did whatever he needed to do for himself that day and I was struggling to do that and I was able to communicate. But yeah, I think that was it. He offered that to me and now I'm able to offer that back to myself. Yeah. That was a sure. really complicated way to answer that. No, I love it because I think, you know, with somatic practices, sometimes it, it, it feels so hard to put your finger on it. Like even someone the other day asked like for book recommendations and I was like, can I give you some teacher recommendations? Like, can I give you some, some meditations to listen to? Because it's, it's sometimes so hard to put your finger on it. Um, but in those moments, just that gentle invitation of someone being present and, and really being able to like co-regulate with you for a moment, right? I'm sure he had a sense in his experience of what was going on for you. And just that gentle invitation to check in, um, sometimes just having awareness of where it is in your body, even if you, I mean, you have the gift of being able to know what was going on, but sometimes we don't even always have a reason for the emotion, but that, that mm -hmm. awareness of it allows it to move through, you know, it allows that attention yeah. to release or the tears to come or us to mm -hmm. sigh and relax or whatever it is, you know, I might need some more work with a, you know, with a practitioner or with the meditation or with yoga, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, we, we hustle and we're on our type is on autopilot and we're doing the things with that are expected and the roles that we 
we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like our body is just carrying our head around from space to space, right? And we don't mm-hmm. always allow it to um, for us to check in, but our body can be an incredible conduit for our emotions if we allow it to be. Um, and so I love that. You're reminding me so much of like something I wish I'd said, which is that one of the biggest changes for me was starting to recognize my emotions as energy, starting to see my emotions as like a sensation rather than um, trying to understand my emotions through my head, which is what I've done my whole life is intellectualize them, which tends to overcomplicate them, which tends to make them linger and actually get much more complicated. And I start to you know, try to do rash things to solve those emotions, which don't always serve me, right? So um, by allowing the emotions to just be sensations in my body, you know, excitement can feel really similar to fear, you know, mm-hmm. it's in, in my body. So like recognizing, okay, this emotion, this, this sensation is here. It feels like this right now. And just allowing it, just noticing it and allowing it to move around in my body and be present in my body. Sometimes that means like I need to cry. Some days I, at this point in my life, like there are days where I know I need to cry today. I don't have to know why I need to cry. I don't need to solve that. I just am going to have to cry today. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll watch a movie or I'll listen to a sad song and I'll let that flow. Mm -hmm. Um, That freedom to not understand it and not solve it with my mind has made emotions so much less complicated for me. Yeah, for sure. Because the reality is, you know, not that that our intellect has to go offline, um, mm-hmm. but there's there's three intelligences, right? If we're trying to sort through our emotions, like we also have body intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's just Western world or maybe it's just pockets of it, but um, I didn't learn that growing up, right? Like I, you know, no one taught me how to process my emotions, right? That didn't come along with my ABCs. And so, um, and so it, it, these are things that we have to learn into adulthood um, or, or with whatever, you know, practices or things like that. Um, but yeah, they, I love that. Thank you for, for talking through some of those pieces. Um, you know, so you've mentioned yoga and meditation. I'm curious if there's any other practices that feel kind of like cornerstone or have been really essential in your, your inner, inner work or in, in kind of balancing some of the reactivity of your type that you've noticed? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say journaling. I journal every morning. That helps with the racing thoughts, right? Like our minds are so fast. Um, and I produce a lot of content for my job. I have to create a lot. So having the time in the morning to just get all of my like running thoughts out allows me to kind of go into work and focus more easily. Um, other things for me are keeping an idea notepad, whether that's a physical notepad or a note on my phone, which is what I do now. But every time I get a good idea that like I want to do right now, I just put that note in my phone and then later maybe I'll do it. But I don't have to do it every idea I have like this minute, which has helped a ton. Um, I will say therapy is incredibly important. And and I think the thing that therapy has helped me with the most is honestly accountability for wanting a simple life because I tend to overcomplicate my existence. I tend to want to add more in to solve all my problems instead of allowing for less. And so uh, having someone who knows that about me, who I talk to every week, who can kind of challenge that impulse to add more to solve um, helps me to not overcomplicate and over and burn out. Yeah. And yeah. And I think, you know, the emotion, the energetic emotions and then the commitment deadlines, those are the things that really, I think, stand out as higher priorities 
The other thing I will say, this is all my, all of these are very practical, but another practice that I try to do is to think through what will, like, what can I do now? What can present me do now to take care of future me? Because for much of my life, um, present me took precedent. So if I was having a negative emotion, present me needed to feel better. So maybe she would go spend a lot of money. Maybe she would um, dodge a responsibility. Maybe she would, you know, I one day just quit a job when I was in college, no notice, because I wanted to go to an Apple festival. <laughs> because all my friends were going to a festival and I, a, a, like an Apple festival, and I couldn't stand the idea of missing out. So yeah. I just quit my job mm-hmm. that day. And um, I don't come from money. Like I needed that job. Like I <laughs> was paying for college with that job. So um, all of that to say that like now, thank goodness, I can go, okay, what is present me going to do for future me? Not what is future me going to sacrifice so that present me can feel good right now? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, and I think even as you list off some of these pieces, both some of them, uh, things that you've collected along the way and some of them, maybe things that are going to stick around for this season. And then another season, you'll have different things. Um, but it, you know, I'm struck by the reality that it's like these rituals and these rhythms that you've like created around you, which if you are a seven in an unhealthy space, that feels really constricting. And it feels like you've made a bunch of rules for yourself, but the reality is you've given yourself some scaffolding so that you can keep building without collapsing because the wind comes differently or it's a rainy day. Um, and so I just, I love that as you're listening through some of those pieces. Well, and I think one of the things that has helped me the most is thinking of rituals and routines as a relationship. So thinking of them as this thing that I'm in relationship to that I can change relationship to when it's not working anymore. So um, I check in with myself every week, every month, every quarter. And in those times, I can go, well, what's working right now? What's not working right now? What do I want to do this quarter? And I can change it. And I think for a long time, I thought routine was like, you do it now and then you do it every single day for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And I think even what you said, like the seasonality of it, I think that helped me so much with actually sticking to a lot of these things for years now uh, because I'm choosing it anew, you know, every few weeks or months. Yeah. Well, and it's not outdated, right? It's not like tradition for tradition's sake. It's this assessment of like, what's going on now and and where am I heading and, and what supports me in that in that space, both now and in the future. No, oh, I love that. Um, you are giving our listeners like just so many gold nuggets. So thank you. Um, so I, I would love to hear just a little bit more about um, like your current work in the Enneagram world. Um, you know, I know that you're releasing a book soon, which I'm very excited about, um, but how people can get connected to you. So just some of the space, those things as a teacher and, and an author. Yeah. So come hang out with me on Instagram at Sarah Jane Case. And then on the podcast, I do a daily podcast Monday through Friday. Um, Fridays are usually interviews. And then the other four days are typically um, hanging out with me. We do educational content. I do typically like series. We do a Q&A every Wednesday and a coffee chat every Monday. So that's all in the podcast at Enneagram and Coffee. And then my new book coming out is The Enneagram Letters. It comes out on October 18th. And it's a really fun take on the Enneagram. It's a poetic exploration of who you thought you had to be 
And mm-hmm. um, I think of the Enneagram as like these nine pressures that we carry around. So like the pressure to be happy or satisfied, the pressure to be strong, the pressure to be successful. And I explore the idea that we all have not all nine pressures within us. We just typically have one that is dominant, that's leading us. And I explore that through letters, personal essays, and poetry that hopefully helps you to self self-empathize in your process of releasing the pressure to be a certain way. Yeah. Mm, I love that. I'm like, have a goosebump just listening to even just the framework of the pressures. Um, so I'm excited for that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that in the, into the world. Um, well, I know that there's lots more that we can chat about, um, but for now we'll end our conversation here. And just again, such a, a gift to get to be back in a Enneagram conversation with you, to hear from you, not just the work that you do in the world, but also um, to hear more about your personal work, because I know that that will ring true and resonate with so many sevens and people that love and are, are in relationship with sevens. Um, so thank you for offering us that gift. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Enneagram friends. Thanks for listening in and listening to this episode with Sarah Jane Case. It's a really a gift to get to learn from others and their experience. And I think it's going to be a tremendous gift to learn from all the Enneagram teachers and practitioners um, that are on the podcast this season. So I hope that you will keep coming back. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast so that you could hear the rest of the episodes this season? That's a great way to share this resource and, and to grow the community and the conversations around the Enneagram. Okay, friends, until next time.